Welcome to EO Audio, the slimy but misunderstood podcast of the East Oregonian. It's Monday, October 26, 2015, and hey, it's Science with Sarah Gardner. Sarah speaks with Aaron Jackson, who heads up the Lamprey Project for the Tribal Fishery Department in Mission. If you don't know, lamprey are an eel-like filterfish native to the Columbia Basin and a first food of the local tribes. They have been eradicated in our local rivers and streams, but efforts are being made to bring the population back to the area. Great to have you, Aaron. Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, you bet. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to start off with getting some of your professional background, how you started working with Lamprey, and um, what got you into this research that you're currently doing. You know, I'm a, I'm a tribal member. I was born and raised here in Cayuse, Oregon. I've worked for this department for the last 20 years. But I really, uh, um, you know, I've always loved the outdoors. It was instilled with me from my dad and my grandparents and his uncles about hunting and fishing and uh, being involved in, in, in the community and uh, being a part of, you know, the, the outdoors. And just, just that's what really drove my love and interest. And uh, I've, I started working in fisheries in 1994 as an entry-level technician doing salmonid monitoring. And... Uh, this new project came out in about May of 96, and it sounded really interesting, lamprey. And nobody really knew anything much about lamprey. We knew that they were historically important to the tribe mm-hmm. as a food source. Uh, we once harvested them here locally in the Umatilla River, but um, the population had been extirpated. And so really my first job duty was to go out and find the historical information of lamprey where they once were and what their current status was for Northeast Oregon and Southeast Washington. How did you go about finding these historical records? Like, what was the process <clears throat> to do that? So that, that was really fun. You know, um, my supervisor, Gary James, basically told me to go out and interview former state district biologists, contact people of the public that were known to be fishermen, talk to university historians about lamprey and uh, so that was my initial work was just going and traveling from the John Day, the Walla Walla, Umatilla, Toucanon and Grand Ronde basins and talking to people that were over there you know serving as either you know a program manager or a biologist over there and say hey what do you know about lamprey over here and it was it was um, <clears throat> very uh, interesting to find that most people you know knew nothing about lamprey. They they saw them through some of their sampling protocol stuff, but uh, really um, lamprey were really lumped into another category of, of trash fish. They just didn't, <laughs> trash fish. Yeah, they really just didn't count them and really you know consider right. them their importance. They didn't understand their ecological importance or the importance to the tribes, and so. It was really difficult to find, you know, quantitative data of, you know, how many lamprey were in the basin because typically they just weren't. Uh, uh, it wasn't that way. monitored. Um, so you you were functioning kind of in an anthropological capacity before well, you started actually working with them. Yeah, in a biological. It, it, capacity. Exactly right. You know, and the and the cool part, the second part of that that I really got to do was interview our tribal members. Hmm. You know, they are the people that really had the uh, the vested interest in seeing this lamprey project. Uh, come to fruitation and uh, and be implemented, and so <clears throat> we developed a questionnaire, and uh, we you know about forty questions, and those questions range from you know how you know where did you used to harvest lamprey, uh, what importance do they serve to the tribe, where um, 
what times of years um, um, lamprey could be, you know, caught in these basins up here? Where was the best spot to harvest lamprey? Um, how are they utilized, you know, with, to support our subsistence diet? Right. Um, and generally people actually had answers for these questions. Like you were able to create this this database of knowledge. Exactly right. And so we took all that information and collated those and, and actually developed a uh, journal article for the Northwest Journal of Anthropology. And that came out in 2004. And uh, Dave Close, uh, former project leader, led, led that uh, publication with uh, Brian Connor and Hiram Lee and myself. Excellent. And so getting that information out was really important for us to really lay the, the baseline that lamprey were once present and that they are important to the tribes. Um, so, I personally don't know a lot about the natural history of lamprey. Um, so, could you go over, you know, a brief natural history and uh, what you've actually been able to gather about the historical range? Yeah. So, just looking, you know, from the information that we have, we know lamprey were all the way from Japan across the Pacific Rim down to Baja, Mexico, is their historical range. Whoa. But their population is severely depressed right now. And not just the Columbia River are seeing declines, but there's also declines, you know, uh, down through uh, California and even up through Alaska and, and, and Canada as well. <clears throat> and populations are even declining over in Japan. And so, but the lamprey have an interesting life uh, cycle. They uh, come into the tributaries in the springtime, and uh, they actually overwinter from the spring into the following spring. And most of their overwintering occurs out in the main stem environment. If they're um, highly motivated, they'll make it into a tributary to overwinter. And then they uh, spawn the following spring, and that usually occurs in June and July. <clears throat> um, eggs um, stay inside the reds 15 to 20 days and, and hatch as uh, pro larvae. They move downstream from there into uh, depositional areas where they rear four to seven years as an amicete. At some point during that stage, they actually go through a metamorphosis where they uh, move from filter feeding into a parasitic phase as a, as a uh, macrophthalmion. And during that stage, they actually develop a closed mouth and develop eyes. And so it gives them the ability to uh, prepare for predation out in the ocean. And these fish are, at that stage are considered young adults. They move out to the ocean during um, high flows, usually that occur in the winter through spring. And out in the ocean, they spend 20 to 40 months out there feeding on uh, anything from, oh, they're known to uh, be on whales and salmon and steelhead, but primarily their uh, prey source are ground fish. Ground fish, okay. So what is the most um, vulnerable stage then for them? Like what have you noticed uh, has been the highest impact on their... It really seems <clears throat> that we think the juvenile out-migration stage is, is very problematic. That life stage, the macrothalmia, does seem to be more susceptible to uh, disease. Um, these fish are moving through, you know, out of the basins over irrigation projects... Oh, where they're right. potentially being you know, pushed up against screens and through concrete. Then they've also got to deal with the main stem environment where you know, those systems are really designed for salmonids and not so much for lamprey. And so lamprey have a hard time getting through those systems. And <clears throat> the number one really limiting factor for lamprey that we've identified is passage. And 
not only for the juveniles, but for the adults as well, getting back up into these areas. And that's across dams primarily? Across dams primarily. And uh, really, we, we've you know attributed uh, passage to around 50% for lamprey at these main stem projects. And so quickly, if you start with 100,000 lamprey at Bonneville Dam, by the time you you know, a lamprey is destined for the Upper Snake Basin, you know, quickly you're down to just to the single digits with the 50% loss. And that's not counting what, you know, the dam-to-dam conversion, what happens inside the reservoirs as well. And so there's losses there as well, either for predation or some of the fish may be turning into a tributary or simply they're just um, lacking motivation to move upstream. Right, because it's easier to stay at the base of a dam than try to go over it. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very difficult for these fish to move up and over. But, you know, we, we're trying to um, uh, do things through the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers committed $50 million to this accord process and uh, to really make, you know, um, the fishways more friendly for lamprey. And lamprey, adult lamprey, are typically just very poor swimmers. And so... You've got these high velocities that um, are coming out of fishways to attract salmon to them. Um, lamprey are using their mouth, their behavior, to actually climb over these structures. And so, you know, man, we love to build things in 90-degree angles. I mean, that's right. just how we do stuff. Yeah. But we're learning that just simply rounding corners on the entrances to fishways are very beneficial for lamprey because it's just like the suction um, cup that you put on glass, you know, if you want to hang something on glass. Lamprey have that same behavior. They exhibit it with their mouth and mm. they actually move up to the base of the dam and will come right near the entrance of the fishway and attach to the outside of the fishway and try and use their mouth to climb around those 90 degree corners. But when you have high sweeping velocities, they, just can't they have to let go and mm-hmm. so they get pushed right back and they start over again. Oh, I see. So one of the focuses that you are then um, working with other people with is trying to fix these fishways. Um, but are there other um, restoration techniques that you guys are you guys are trying to? Implement? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And because the passage is so poor and fish aren't making it back here into these areas, we started in 2000 an adult translocation program. And so basically, what we do is we go down and collect these fish from the main stem dams. We have some traps that we've designed that go inside the fishways where we know lamprey tend to slip by unmonitored, which is the picketed lead area. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> we drop these traps down in. The lamprey enter the traps. We collect them, and then we haul them, you know, to our holding location up at South Fork Walla Walla where those fish will spend, you know, the next several months. And then during the winter, we bring them here to our Minthorn Springs facility here in the Umatilla River until... And we hold them until they're sexually mature in the following spring. And then uh, we release those fish here in the Umatilla. And recently, just this year, we started releasing fish into the Grand Rod. Oh, nice. And uh, so we're using, you know, uh, um, the, the strategy seems to be working well for the Umatilla. So we're applying that into another basin to see uh, just how well it does over there, too. And, you know, we really feel we have three methods to, um, to restore lamprey. One is you can do nothing and hope that they come back on their own and just fix habitat, okay. which, which, you know, that could work possibly in the lower basin where they're not dealing with so many dams. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one is, is adult translocation, which we've been using here in the Umatilla since 2000. We're seeing success. We're seeing, you know, this prime habitat occupied by juveniles. We're seeing the trend of juveniles out-migrating increase. We're seeing adult counts re- increase as well and then the last technique that we're working on that's new and kind of cutting edge is artificial propagation and that's really you know spawning the fish ourselves 
rearing the juveniles to a life stage, and then eventually we want to outplant those fish in uh, other basins and, and, and do a comparison analysis between adult translocation and artificial propagation to see what kind of gives you the biggest bang for the buck and what is the most effective strategy. And we're still learning on this stuff, you know. Even though we've been doing this lamprey thing for 15 years, it's still in its infancy. Right. And uh, artificial propagation took over 50 years to perfect with salmonid stuff. So we've only been doing artificial propagation for a couple of years, but we're learning a lot of things. And uh, we really hope it will be a valuable tool not only to get fish back out in the river, but also we desire to have fish for tagging. You know, uh, so you test can look fish. at migration from these tributaries to the ocean. Exactly like right. Yeah. Exactly right. You know, passage is the is the main limiting factor, and you know, lamprey um, don't you know have a lot of body cavity area, and so we're having to miniaturize an already miniaturized tag at the tune of five million dollars right now to. Uh, that's not per tag. <laughs> no, that's not per tag. Thank okay. goodness. So, but that was that's just the R and D work, and so uh-huh. we're really hoping the tags will will drop down in price. But uh, the Corps of Engineers, uh, with the Department of um, Defense, um, are are working to uh, um, with Patel up in Tri Cities to uh, oh, yeah. to uh, miniaturize this tag already, and it was a sweet deal for us because uh, Department of Defense wanted this tag to study American eels back on uh, the East Coast, and so. They knew we were developing this, and so it was an excellent cost share for us to make dollars stretch further. Excellent. So uh, this artificial propagation that you guys are doing, is it pretty difficult to raise these fish? or You know, uh, the actual spawning work and stuff like that is relatively easy, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and a lamprey has a fecundity of 70,000 to 140,000. Per so, female? Per female. Wow. And so you get a lot of eggs to deal with pretty quickly, but... There's also uh, um, some, you know, associated mortality because of the fecundity is so high. And uh, we're really working through this bottleneck at the three-month stage and trying to figure out, you know, why lamprey potentially are, are uh, dying off in, in our culture facilities at that stage. And, and so um, <clears throat> it's not just us doing this work. It's the Yakima Nation, and it's the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Abernathy Lab. And we're really partnering together and to, uh, to figure out, you know, you know, what kind of feed do these fish need? What kind of densities can you hold them at? Um, what kind of rearing um, material they need inside of their uh, troughs or, con- or their uh, uh, containers to, um, you know, make them the most successful. And so we really partnered up this year and really trying to address those, those very things. And we've seen a lot better success with this year's uh, batch of fish than we have in the, in the last couple of years. And we think we may... Uh, have, have figured out what kind of what some of those answers to that bottleneck. Yeah, it, has that been the the biggest challenge that you've found in Pacific lamprey restoration? Is is um, like this artificial propagation or? or you know, the the biggest challenge uh, that I think you know with re- recovery for lamprey is you know going back to the passage and understanding their limiting factors. You know, other things affected lamprey as well, and intentional poisoning, poisoning that occurred in 1967 and 74 in the Umatilla Basin. Uh, what they, was this poisoning? And so it was it was common practice for uh, managers to use rotenone, and rotenone is a plant-derived root that uh, they use that basically they, they drip this stuff into, into the water, and it basically takes the oxygen out of the water. And, uh, and kills, you know, aquatic life within, within that area, within the treatment zone. 
And as I was explaining earlier in their life history, lampreys spend four to seven years rearing in these systems. And yeah, so, like filter feeding. Yeah, and they're filter feeding right mm-hmm. down in the, in the benthic environment, right, in the right. sand and sediment. And so they started doing these treatments, and uh, they wiped out, you know, four to seven age classes of fish per time they did this. And so when they did it twice, we figured that it was pretty effective in wiping out the lamprey population in the Umatilla River. And, hmm. you know, again, lamprey were thought to be kind of these, you know, trash fish. They didn't understand their importance ecologically or the importance of the, to the tribes uh, as a resource. Hmm. What were they tr- targeting with this poison? Yeah, and so uh, we, we kind of researched that a little bit. We were curious too, you know, yeah. and uh, it comes to find out that uh, the, the uh, managers at the time wanted to plant steelhead here in the Umatilla River, and they were thinking that some of the other non-native um, species or, or species that um, didn't serve a purpose for uh, <laughs> a person to go fish for uh-huh. weren't of value. And so and you can't really go sell a person a tag to go harvest a lamprey. Right. You know, they're just not interested in no. doing that. Yeah. And uh, so it, it was the thought that there was comp- too much competition within uh, um, the basin. And so it was a common practice to go and rote on these areas and then stock them with a fish that you thought was more appropriate that could potentially generate some revenue. And we've revised our thinking <laughs> yes we, we have revised our thinking you know and you haven't seen much rote known use in uh in the pacific northwest probably since the late 1980s early 1990s mm-hmm. and you know there are times when the rote known is appropriate to use when a system you know has been introduced with the fish that isn't appropriate for that stream or from that area and you'll see that a lot in you know the forest ponds and stuff like that that are managed by uh, odfw where Someone's introduced, you know, say bluegill or crappie to a forest stream that was, or a forest lake that was, you know, destined or supposed to have, you know, trout or something in it. Okay. So, uh, so what is the ecological significance or the the um, role that these land break? Yeah. Play? So, so as juveniles, you know, they're filter feeders, and I like to think of each one of these guys as little mini water treatment factories, <laughs> you know. And tribal members called them cleaners of the streams because they noticed they sucked onto the rocks. Mm. And, um, you know, but ecologically, you know, these guys are moving as juveniles. They're moving um, uh, biota up through the food chain and passing along up, 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 and, up and through. And so um, the juveniles, you know, as filter feeders are serving that role. The uh, young adults, the macrothalmia, when they're moving out into the uh, main stem Columbia River, they serve as a buffer for predators, you know, um, sturgeon that are out there, um, northern pike minnow that are out there that have been predating, you know, more recently on salmonids, mm-hmm. um, historically used to predate upon salmonids and lamprey. Caspian terns is a, another great example. In 1950s, they did a study at McNary Dam that showed that the terns were primarily filled with uh, juvenile lamprey compared to salmon. And when we lost the juvenile lamprey, up here in the upper basin, um, that predation focus shifted to salmonids. And so the, the juvenile macrothalmia play in a very important role, acting as a buffer heading out to the stream. So too much focus isn't on one species for, for predators. For predators, yeah. The adults coming back stream, you know, bring those marine-derived nutrients that are just very important to oligolithic uh, streams. So it's, mm-hmm. it's important to uh, get those fish up in there and... Uh, and let their uh, carcasses decay and uh, let the macroinvertebrates and all the terrestrial species and other aquatic life um, utilize utilize them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's just another puzzle piece that 
people tried to poison. But. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and I like to think of just those very, you know, those ecosystem services that mm-hmm. um, Lamprey provide that uh, seems like ecosystem services are now just in the last 10 years being talked about more, you know. And there's, uh, you know, regulating and supporting and uh, cultural services. And uh, I like to think of the aesthetic beauty of Lamprey. Someday somebody might just want to go up and actually see a Lamprey spawning in the wild, you know. Cause yeah, I mean, I do. Non- <laughs> that sounds really great. Yeah, they are, they are non-charismatic, you know. They're not winning any beauty contests, <laughs> but they're definitely beautiful to me and my staff and, mm-hmm. and us here at the tribe. Uh, so what is the cultural significance for at least the Umatilla? Yeah, here here locally, you know, the lampreys are considered a first food. They are involved in our ceremonies here at the Longhouse. Um, They are served uh, on our table here. Um, The tribes have been utilizing lampreys, you know, since time immemorial. Mm -hmm. Um, They've always been a subsistence food source and a staple for us that we could rely upon. Um, It was pretty cool doing my oral history interviews with the tribal elders. One of them told me that when times were good, they would eat hamburgers because they had money, but when times were bad, they always knew they could rely on the eel. Hmm. And tribal members refer to them to, as eels, as eels. And, and always have. And They look very the, eel-like. They do look very eel-like. Yeah. And, you know, there are some just some minor differences. You know, um, eels tend to have paired fins and jaws, and, and lampreys uh, lack those structures. And they have um, the teeth around yep. Their it, mouth. Thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I think it, it's actually kind of a good look. I, I, <laughs> I think they're a great looking animal. But um, yeah. so the the preparation of these these eels, like what traditionally was done with them, like how would you prepare them? Yeah, and so um, some travel, you know, we still harvest at Willamette Falls today because that's really our last stronghold that we can go and get them. And it's myself and my crew that usually go down and we harvest for the tribe as a community. And, and and bring them back to our community. Um, what time of year do you do these harvests? We're down there in June and July is really when the run uh, peaks down there at uh, Willamette Falls. And it's also, you know, dependent on flow conditions when we can actually access the falls safely by boat. Um, but fish are brought back. Um, they're, they're handed out to tribal members over at uh, July grounds that are usually, you know, eagerly waiting for them. Mm. Um, sometimes you'll see little fires built within the within our housing area here immediately. A lot of people like to cut them into links about the size of a hot dog and roast them over an open fire. Um, lampreys are very, very, uh, uh, have a high lipid content. Fatty. It's, it's very, very <laughs> fatty. And so, you know, literally you could fill a coffee cup full of oil out of one lamprey. Huh. And so they'll roast them over an open fire like that and just let the oils drift and, and crisp them up. Some tribal members bake them. I've heard of people canning them. Um, but... Um, Primarily, they're they're typically cooked over an open flame, and mm-hmm. you have to be. <laughs> interesting thing I kind of learned, you know, as I, you know, ate lamprey more and more, is that you really have to have your own barbecue for lamprey because if you go to cook a steak <laughs> on that thing the next it time, tastes like lamprey. Tastes just like the lamprey. <laughs> do you get? Uh, do you use the like fat? Um, that you collect for anything as well? Or you know, um, that was used as hair grease tr- traditionally mm-hmm. from uh, tribal members. And actually... <laughs> so you can smell more like a yeah, lamprey. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, actually, you know, um, they were a natural pacifier. Uh, tribal members used to cut the tails off of lamprey, dry them, and then give them to their kids as something to chew on as, mm-hmm. as a natural pacifier. And one other cool, interesting story that I learned is that, uh, you know, huckleberries come out just after the lamprey run. And, and actually even coincide with each other at the same time. And uh, 
tribal members would feed their kids uh, eels all the way up to the mountains to pick huckleberries because those two tastes kind of clash. And so mm-hmm. um, the kids would put more huckleberries in their basket versus eating them because when they went to eat a huckleberry, it was kind of a sour taste. It didn't taste. taste very good. didn't taste very good. And yeah. so they are actually able to collect more berries that way. So, <laughs> you know, just all that traditional ecological knowledge, you know, that um, – people kind of take for granted and and that doesn't get necessarily the credit that western science does yeah no kidding um and this was only you know gathered through conversations that you had yeah yeah that's fantastic no it was really cool uh so how can uh, just the general public help with lamprey restoration is there anything that we can contribute to um, your research you know, um, lampreys really, um, like I was mentioning before, they're, they're down there in the benthic environment, and that's where toxins tend to accumulate. <clears throat> and we love to spray our weeds. We love to throw our grass clippings in the river. You know, paying, just being cognizant of, of what we're doing in and around streams is very important. Mm-hmm. And that could be, you know, probably some of the greatest help that, uh, the, that uh, Joe Public could do to uh, really help and benefit lamprey generally. So what's the plan then um, once you put these fish out and they reach the young adult stage where they want to move to the ocean, are you then going to monitor, say, like the marked ones and things like that mm-hmm. um, and try and get them passage, or is passage still going to be the primary issue? You know, um, that's that's exactly right. And so we'll be, you know, tagging these fish with a pit tag inside the tributaries and, you know, I, I talk about the main stem Columbia being an issue, but also we've got these low head irrigation diversions within tributaries that are issues as well. And we see a lot of entrainment of uh, these juveniles into those facilities. Um, one, you know, those facilities collect a lot of sediment, mm. which is prime habitat for lamprey, right? But then what do we do? We go in there and clean all that sediment out there and dewater those uh, um, those structures. And so... Because of the Clean Water Act, it really prevents us from moving that sediment that was just collected upstream out of the river back into the river. And so right. this stuff's placed up on the bank, you know, and there could be literally thousands of juvenile lamprey inside that. And so that's a big management uh, action for us is figuring out a way to safely move lamprey through these facilities. But mm-hmm. um, we need to be able to have an active tag and monitoring equipment to be able to right. understand what the entrainment rate is, put a quantitative data you know, and, um, and, and qualitative on top of that as well. And so, uh, but that's the whole goal is, you know, to create safe passage from fish coming in and fish going out. And, uh, hopefully we'll be able to, uh, you know, get this tag here in the next uh, little bit, get the fish tagged, get them out and really start to understand those things. And, and the the problems will show themselves very quickly, I'm sure. Excellent. Well, it, I'm pretty excited to hear how things go in the next few years. This is a great project. And yeah. I, I'm hoping I can see Lamprey either in the Umatilla or Walla Walla or Grand Ronde while I'm recreating. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely, you know. And uh, our, our counts have really increased there in the Umatilla. And, and from 98 through 2009, we were monitoring. You can count the number of lamprey on your two hands that we're seeing in the Umatilla. Mm-hmm. 2011, 12, and 13, we had counts of 319, 404, and uh, this year about 270. Orders so, of magnitude more. Yeah, orders like of magnitude it. more. So, yeah, it's been great, you know. And, and it really gives us a sense that, you know, the strategy that we're doing is working, yeah. you know, and so hopefully, obviously it's not enough to sustain a harvest because that is our goal, a, a stable 
self-sustaining, harvestable population in our, in our historic areas that we once harvested and collected these fish. Yeah. And so it's going to take some time to get there, but we really feel with the uh, increased adult returns that we're headed in the right That's direction. That's possible eventually. It's possible, yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Aaron, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, great. And hey, love to do a check-in in a couple of years with uh, some more information. Yeah, let's do it. All right. You're on the calendar. <laughs> thank you for listening. Thank you.